0: So when I was a kid, one of my favorite cartoons was called Duck Tales. I don't know if you're familiar. There's a new generation, a reboot of the show. It's not as good. But the main character is Scrooge McDuck. He's the richest person in the world, so rich that he's got a massive vault on his property full of nothing but gold coins, just a pool of gold and there's a platform up above it where he can step through a door and stand over all of his money and then he does something so cool he dives into it like a swimming pool and he swims in his gold he comes up on the surface and spits out gold coins like it's water and y'all when i was a kid i wanted to do that so bad i didn't care about being rich i just wanted to to swim in money it looked so awesome in the cartoon. Now, the physics of it don't really work. I mean, if you jumped into gold, you would die. But that's not really the point. The point is that Scrooge, he didn't just possess his treasure. He enjoyed it. He went into it. He swam in it. And y'all, that's, that's what it is to have a treasure, whether that treasure is a thing or a person. The whole point of treasuring something is that it has your heart. Something has your affection, it gets your attention, it demands your thoughts, you think about it all the time, you treat your treasure with great care and concern, it's a source of joy for you. That's what makes it a treasure. Well, here in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul is going to make this application for us as it relates to our faith in Jesus. In, in chapter 1 of Colossians, uh, we, we looked at this over a few weeks Uh, Paul shows us that Jesus is supreme. In chapter 2, Paul shows us that Jesus is sufficient. We don't need anything more or anything else beyond him. He saves us entirely by his grace. Well, here in chapter 3, Paul's going to show us the implications of those things. If Jesus is supreme and all-sufficient, then there's a way that the rubber meets the road that you and I are actually called to live in response to those truths. That there is, for us, a, a, we are compelled now, because of what we have in Christ, to treasure him foremost in our lives. That he's meant to have our heart, that we're meant to give our whole life to him. Your thoughts, your affections, everything now belongs to Jesus. He's not something that merely exists on the side. Like Scrooge's treasure, it didn't exist somewhere else. It was near and dear to his heart, and he enjoyed it. And that's what we're called to do With our faith in christ so so chapter three we're going to spend a couple of weeks in chapter three but paul is going to fixate spend most of the chapter on behavior he hasn't done a lot of that up to this point in the letter he's not talked a lot about commands here we're going to get to the commands next week we'll see it he's going to talk a lot about sin and how we are meant to reject sin then after that he's going to talk about holiness positive behavior that we're meant to embrace Then he's going to talk to us about what it means to be husbands and wives and parents of children, and then how we work, all-encompassing. Paul's going to say, your life is meant to be lived a certain way, but to get there, to get to the behavior, we have to start with the heart. That's what Colossians 3 does in the beginning. What we just read a minute ago, we've got to start with the heart. I had a, a pastor in college, Bill Murphy, he would often say, it all begins in the heart. Very simple thing to say, but so powerful, so true. I never forgot it. It all begins in the heart. Jesus said the good person out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. Meaning, the good person is not good because his outward behavior is fake. We smile, we're nice, we hold the door open, but deep down we're, we're nasty. No, Jesus says if you're good, it's because your heart is good. Your outward behavior is is driven by, it's dictated by what's inside. And that's Paul's point here in Colossians chapter 3. So we are called to treasure Christ from the heart, and that heart will then dictate everything else. Look, Look with me again at chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking, set your heart on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What does Paul mean when he says, if you have been raised up with Christ? That's just a kind of a fancy way for him to say, if you are a Christian, since you are a Christian. Well, why didn't he just say that? Why why all the fancy spiritual language here? Y'all, this is actually very important. This is not Paul just being poetic. When the Apostle Paul speaks of being a Christian, what it means to be a Christian, almost always Paul does not talk about simply what we believe. He talks about a a position that we exist in, and he says there's a union that you have with Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. In this case, he says you've been raised up with Christ. You've been unified with him. He's done something for you that you are now a partaker of. So it's not just something that you believe abstractly. It's something that's happened to you. Uh, Oftentimes, Paul will say that you are in Christ. Jesus in John 15 said, abide in me and I will abide in you. There's a change of our position. We are now in, we are with, we are united to Jesus. So a Christian is not somebody who merely uh, believes in a religious idea that there's a God out there, he loves me, and Jesus died for me. No, the Bible defines a Christian as someone who's been united with Christ. There's a relationship at stake here. And so this is something that we, you know, we talked last week at, at Easter, we talked a lot about the resurrection of Jesus, how Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sins, and he was raised again to new life, incorruptible, eternal life. What a victory. Well, Paul says right here, that in a similar way, just as Jesus died and was raised, we have also experienced a death and resurrection. That we have died with Christ to the old way of life, to the old self, and we've been raised up with him to walk in newness of life. There's a spiritual reality here that connects us, it links us with Christ. So he didn't just do something for us. He has now brought us to himself, and we are unified. We share in his life a new life. We are no longer corrupt. We're no longer what we, are, what we used to be. We're pure. We're in Christ. Right? Why is that so important? Y'all, most pe- Here's what most people think Christianity means. Most people think Christianity is a person who says, I believe the Bible and I try to do what it says. And that on the surface sounds noble and it sounds probably right. I believe the Bible and I try to do what it says. But that's not how Christianity is defined. Of course we believe the Bible, of course we try to obey the Bible, but there's no union in that statement. There's no relationship there. Listen, you're not a Christian if you have a generic belief in the Bible. That's not enough. That's not the definition of what it is to be in Christ. You are a Christian because you have trusted a person. You have placed your faith in the person of Jesus And you are now one with him. You are in Christ. That's what saves us. That's what makes us Christians. Now, if we fail to see that, if we fail to see our faith as union with Jesus, we will always fall back into just mere religious practice. If you don't see yourself as united with Christ in relationship to him, what will you do? What will I do? We'll take Christianity and make it exclusively about I need to read my Bible, I need to pray, I need to go to church, I need to stop doing this and I need to start doing that, we'll make it strictly about behaviors and disciplines and we'll miss the relationship. And Paul is calling us to more than that. Do you see what he says? Look again at verse 1. Since you have been raised up with Christ, Keep seeking the things above. Set your heart on Him. That's where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. Because you've been given union with Christ, Paul says, continually set your heart on Him. Keep seeking the things above. He's above. He is seated at the right hand of God. That's a statement of His divine supremacy and authority. When Paul says, keep seeking Christ, He's seated at the hand of the Father. He's saying that there's nothing above Jesus that we ought to seek. There's no higher ambition in your life that you need to be about. He's it. He is the highest of all loves. He is the greatest of all devotions. There's no ambition that you can give your life to that will be greater than Jesus. And so seek him. Set your heart continually on him. Do you see how that's different? than saying, I need to read my Bible, I need to pray, I need to be in church, I need to stop being this way, and I need to start living this way. Do you see how how it's different? Those are all noble things. To read your Bible, to pray, to be in church, my goodness, those are all exclusively Christian realities. We ought to be doing those things, but that in itself is not enough for us. Because those are not the words of a person who's consumed with Jesus. Jesus. Those are are the words of a person who's who's trying to merely be religious. And the difference makes all the difference. It's all the difference in the world. So the point here in chapter 3 is this. If you want to be more uh, hungry for the Bible, if you want to pray more, if you want to be more devoted to the church, those are not mere disciplines. Those are um, outcomes. Those are responses to a heart devoted to a person, to Jesus. It comes from a greater desire for Jesus. And Paul echoes that in verse 2. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So Paul is making uh, two statements here at the same time. They're really, it's the same idea, but he makes them in two different ways. You've been raised with Christ but you've also died with Christ. Before you could be raised, you had to die. So Paul is making the point, both positive and negative. You see this? He says, Set your heart on Jesus because Jesus is supreme. Set your eyes high on Him, positive. But also set your heart, set your mind on Jesus because you're no longer what you were. You are no longer merely of this world. Your identity, your ambitions, your, your hopes, your joys, your pleasures, those things are no longer rooted in this world only. You've died to that. And you are now hidden with Christ in God. Earlier in chapter 2, Paul said, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, meaning they are found exclusively in Him. And he uses the same term to speak of us. You, your life, is now exclusively given to Jesus. You're hidden in him. You belong to him and no other. You and I, we don't belong to this world the way we used to. We belong to Christ. And so the essence of Paul's command, we see it in the first three verses. He says, in light of the new reality you have in Jesus, and it is new, in light of this divine union that we've been given, this new life that we've been given, he says, all of our affections, all of our treasure should now be centered on him. It, it's the only logical thing for us to do. If Christ has done for us what the scripture declares, then we cannot make him merely a part of our lives. He's the centerpiece. He's the focus. Everything else orbits around him. Um, now, I know this. I, most, this is not new information to most of us. You probably come to church expecting to hear this kind of stuff. Jesus is great. We ought to be more committed to him. We ought to really live for him and love him more. Okay, I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty normal kind of Sunday message to hear. This is not new information. But my question would be this. I'm not raising my hand. If I ask, if I ask for a, a show of hands, who feels like we're really hitting the mark when it comes to the obedience of these verses? We all know it's true. We all know we ought to. But who's going to say I'm the bullseye for what Colossians 3 looks like? Y'all take notes on me. I'm continually seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I'm I'm standing in a place more of conviction than a victory in this regard. And so I'm just going to take a few minutes to share conviction here with y'all. Some of this is going to be about me. Some of this is going to apply hopefully beyond me. But I feel just honestly where I stand, I feel like I seldom raise my sights to Jesus the way Paul calls us to here in Colossians 3. This is not how I would define my life. I hope this is what they write on my tombstone one day. But as it is, I'm not going to raise my hand and say I'm the bullseye. I struggle with this, and I'm sure you do too. So I, want to, I just want to recognize, let's take a few minutes and think about how easily we drift away from the plain, simple, wonderful command of chapter 3. Okay? Now, I'm going to speak generally, but I think you're going to probably find yourself somewhere in what I'm talking about. Two issues I want to, I want to mention here, two of many. Uh, first issue, we are a people who are voluntarily overloaded. Some of us work too much. Some of us overschedule our lives. We overschedule our children. Um, many of us are constantly, we're glued to our phones. We're always binging on a screen, whether it be phone or internet or Netflix, something like that. And the outcome of those things, the outcome of overstimulation, of overscheduling, is always the same. We end up neglecting devotion to Jesus. It's always the same. We end up l- losing out on devotion to the Lord. Time spent with Jesus, dedicated, focused time, generally it becomes for us an afterthought or at best it gets our leftover energy because we've overloaded our lives with so many competing and distracting things. And so maybe you're like me, you stay up till 11 watching something, you don't get enough sleep, you wake up in a fog the next morning, then the day just hits you in the face, you find yourself running through the day, the end of the day comes and you realize, man, I've kept Jesus in the margins all day long. I've spent no time engaging him. And how easily does a day become a week and a week becomes a month? And life gets out of hand. It spirals, in that sense, out of control, and it's voluntary. For the most part, we're making those decisions as to how we spend our time, and we're leaving Jesus in the margin. We're not victims in all of this. Now, I'm not accusing right here. I'm confessing that I'm guilty of this. Now, in the same way, second issue, in the same way, a lot of us, we don't treat our sin with the seriousness that we should. Now, certain sins are really bad, and we may, we may do a good job of avoiding the really, really bad ones, sure. But then there are other sins, and I, I feel certain about this. I know it's true for me. There are certain sins that we get comfortable with and we don't think much about. Things that we feel like, you know, if, if, if I can hide it, then it's okay, or if I can justify it. If I can excuse it as something that's just normal, it's, it's what everybody does. Things like pride or greed or envy, uh, anger, selfishness, vanity. We could go on forever. Bitterness, unforgiveness, ugly things that are in my heart, and yet I coddle those sins rather than rejecting them. Because they're easy to hide, they're easy to justify. Why don't those things bother me like they should? I mean, when, when is the last time you or I, when's the last time we met with the Lord and sincerely confessed sin and repented of it you know we live in a self-esteem culture where that is the primary thing that we ought to focus on self our self-esteem and therefore we've lost the art of confession I don't like to talk to God about the things I've done wrong because I don't want to focus on that I want to focus on the good when's the last time I confessed my sin to the Lord really and truly or to put it in terms of Colossians 3, why do I so easily lower my sights to the things of the earth and lose sight of the things of heaven? Why do I so easily fall back into the, to the habits and the ways of thinking that, that define the old self when Jesus has made me new? Remember, these are questions of the heart. These are questions of the heart. Because what we treasure in our hearts is what drives and dictates our behavior. So y'all, the, the main issue in these, these things I've mentioned is not time management. The main issue is not personal discipline, important as those things are. The main issue is, I have not really taken to heart the supremacy of Jesus, of who he is and what he's done for me. And therefore, my life reflects that he's a, he's a part, he's maybe an important part, but he's not the center I want us to go back and look at these verses again and just ask ourselves the hard question here. These are short verses, but they're so powerful. Look again at verse 1, where Paul says, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now the question, the hard question, do we really believe that? Do we really believe, verse 1, that Jesus did not come to improve your life by just being a part of your life but Jesus actually came to bring you to God to join you with himself and to raise you up to a new life entirely what do we really believe that Jesus came to give all of his grace and glory all of his righteousness and joy that he actually came to give those things to us that we might share with him in those things forever do we really believe that Because if I did, if I really took those things to heart, why am I so easily entertained and distracted by stuff that just drowns his voice out of my life? Why do I live the way I live if I really believe what verse 1 says? Then verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do we really believe that? That Jesus did not come to enforce stricter rules of behavior. He actually came to give his life for us that he might put to death our body of sin. That instead of living a life of corruption, we are now living a new life of purity. We've been washed clean. We've been sanctified by the love of a Savior. Therefore, we are now free from the penalty of sin and we are free from the power of sin. Do I really believe that? If I I really took those truths to heart, would I coddle sin in my life just because it's easy to hide or easy to justify? Those sins that Jesus died for as well. He didn't just die for the bad stuff. He died for the stuff that we excuse and hold on to. He died to destroy that. Why do I like to hold on to it? See, it's, it's I haven't taken these things to heart. It's easy to look at Colossians 3, 1 through 3 and say, my goodness, I want to post this on the fridge. I want to hang this in a picture frame on the mantle. But to actually take it to heart, to believe it, it it's something different. Now, I'm sure that you're like me, that you, you want this to be true of your life. I, I mean, I certainly do. I read it and I think, man, I, I want to seek Jesus more. I don't want to fixate on the world. I want to be dead to the elementary things that used to define me, and I want to live a new life, a life that seeks heaven and the things of Jesus. I want these things, I'm sure, just like you do. Well, let me, let me encourage you in this then. If this were easy and natural, the Bible wouldn't have to command it. If you're sitting here feeling bad about yourself, that you're not more this way, You're like me, get in line. But listen, if this were easy, if this were just flipping a switch, then Paul wouldn't have to command it. We would just do it naturally. The fact that the Bible has to tell us to do this shows us that it's not natural. This is a work of God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to produce this, and he does not produce it by way of flipping a switch. It's a daily, continual reality that we engage, that we step into. Um, That's why Paul says, he says, keep Seeking the things above. That's a continual action verb. You've got to continually do it. Yesterday's seeking is not going to carry over necessarily into today. God's desire is that I would build on it, that I would continually seek him today all the more, right? So this is something that's unnatural to us. It's got to be a work of God, and it's something that takes time. It's a lifelong pursuit. I say that to encourage you. Let me encourage you also with a story from the Bible. I've shared this before, but I just find it so helpful. This is from Galatians 2. Now, if you're really Bible drill fast, you can turn there, but you don't have to. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul, who also wrote Colossians, he tells a story, and it's really one of these stories that we're, we're shocked by. Paul tells a story about a time where he and the apostle Peter had it out. Big conflict. In fact, Paul says, I defied Peter to his face. Because he stood condemned. He stood in hypocrisy. Now, what in the world could have happened that would have caused such a rift? Well, Paul tells us the story that Peter was at one time hanging out with, eating with, fellowshipping with Gentile Christians. People who were of a different race, a different nationality than the Jews, but they had become Christians, and so Peter has extended the hand of fellowship to them, just as he should. But then certain important Jewish Christians come into town... And Peter withdraws from the Gentiles for fear of his reputation. He disassociates with those people and only hangs out with the important Jewish men. Well, Paul calls Peter out for that because Peter is a leader of the church. You can't do this. You can't fall into that kind of hypocrisy. And and ultimately, the issue uh, was racism. This is, you know, Jews and Gentiles are of, are of different nationalities. One is clean. The Jews, we're God's people. The other, they're dirty. They're pagans. We don't associate with them. And so Peter had done what for him was probably very natural. He withdrew back to what he knew, back to what he knew would uh, reflect a good reputation to the others. Right? But Paul calls him out. He says, you can't do that. Now, Paul's problem with Peter was not that Peter had broken a rule. He he didn't say, Peter, you broke the no-racism law. He could have appealed to that, that what Peter had done was wrong. But what Paul actually says is fascinating. It's in Galatians 2.14. Paul says, Peter was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Peter was not being straight about the truth of the gospel. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that? The gospel means good news. It's the good news of the salvation that we've been given by faith in Jesus. And the gospel says, explicitly the gospel says, that all people, regardless of nationality, regardless of your upbringing or how hard you've tried in the past to be good, it doesn't matter, we're all at level footing. Every single person is equally sinful and lost. And every single person is equally loved by God. And Jesus died on the cross without distinction every person, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter, every person is able to come to Jesus by faith and receive the same gift of salvation. Nobody is one better than the other. That's what the gospel declares. Paul says, Peter, you're living outside of the truth of the gospel. And so when Peter withdrew from the Gentiles, he was in that moment, he wasn't just breaking a rule, he was living as if the gospel wasn't true. He was denying the essence of what Jesus had come to do, not just for him, but for these people as well. Now, it's in this context that Paul gives us a very, very famous kind of hallmark Christian verse, Galatians 2.20, one of the first verses I ever committed to memory. I'd really encourage you to do it. It's so good. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have, you have, we've been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And the life that we now live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and delivered himself up for us. You see what Paul is saying right there? It's the same thing he's saying in Colossians 3. You have died with Christ, you are no longer what you were. The old rules no longer apply, the old way of life is no longer yours because you've died to that, and you've been raised up with him. There's a new life you live, a life of faith, and the life that you live now is a life that is immersed in Jesus Christ. He has filled us and changed us. So listen, what, what was Peter's problem? Now, we don't look down on Peter, by the way. Any of us could, could be guilty of much worse, but Peter's problem is this. More than likely, he was raised up in an environment that said, Jews are good, Gentiles are bad, And I'm guessing, and it's very likely, that Peter, even as a Christian, had a lingering struggle with racism, just like maybe a lot of us do. We hate it, but it's in there because it was how we were raised, perhaps. And Peter certainly had a lingering desire for the approval of men. That's why he withdrew from the less important folks and started hanging out at the cool kids' table, right? That he had a desire to be approved of that was hard for him to shake. We don't look down on Peter. All of us could be guilty of that. The Apostle Paul was not immune to it. Paul tells us elsewhere that he, by his own admission, he was, uh, had a propensity to arrogance and vanity. Paul had his own issues. Your pastor had, among other things, I've got a propensity to, to spiritual laziness and entitlement and complacency. You can fill in your own blanks as to the old stuff That continues to haunt us, that continues to try to drive us in directions that are opposite Jesus. The question is then how was Peter going to change? How are you and I ever going to change? How is our behavior actually going to reflect the wonderful things that we've been given? It's only when we fixate not on the rules. There was no rule that was going to change Peter's heart. That's why Paul didn't blame him for breaking the rules. He said, You've lost the gospel. You're out of step with the gospel. Only the gospel, only the grace of Jesus Christ is going to penetrate and change the heart of the people in this room, starting with me. Only when we see him as the kind of treasure that drives and dictates everything else in our life, only then are we going to change. And so listen, I just say this, if we're we're thinking about Peter, and of course this is, you know, we, we wouldn't raise our hands on this one either, but if you have lingering racism in you, You're not going to change by simply acknowledging that it's wrong and you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't feel it. You shouldn't joke about that. That's not going to change a person's heart. Only the gospel of Jesus changes the heart. The gospel which declares that every tribe, tongue, and nation, every skin color, there's no distinction when we come to the cross. We come to the cross on equal footing. I'm no better than anybody. In fact, I'm probably worse. The cross humbles me. I can't. Who can I look down on? when a Savior had to take my sin, I elevate Him, and in the process, I walk away from, my, from the heart that wants to look down on others for, for whatever reason, right? It's the gospel that changes our hearts. So here's the deal. I, yeah, I know this is a heavy message. I get it. I get it. Um, it's heavy for me. It's been a lot of conviction for me this week. But let me warn you. We're going to turn the corner here as we close. I want to warn you. Here's what I tend to do, and this is wrong. And it feels so right, but it's not. Here's what I tend to do. I tend to say, man, I need to love Jesus more. I need, to, I need to fix my eyes on Jesus and seek the things above. So here's the deal. I've got to wake up early and read my Bible. And I've got to delete my social media. And I've got to get rid of Netflix. And I've got to stop being so selfish. And I've got to stop being so prone to anger. And I've got to, you know, and, and I've, I've got to get serious about my faith. Doesn't that sound right? Sounds good. All those things are noble things. I would never discourage you from waking up early and reading your Bible. We ought to be doing that, sure. But y'all, what, what's happening in the motivating center of my heart? Where, what's my motivation when I say that? My motivation is, I haven't been a good Christian, and I need to do better. Have you ever felt that feeling before? I haven't been a good Christian, I need to do better. I need to do better. But y'all, what's, what's my fixation? What's my motivation? It's not Jesus, it's me. And it's what I need to do in order to be better. And you know what, that's that's motivated by guilt, it's not motivated by grace. And it will, now listen, it'll give you a burst of energy, that conviction, that sense of guilt, I need to do better, you will start waking up earlier. You might delete your social media, you might do some practical things that are good that will help you get that burst, but it's just like a New Year resolution. It's bound to wane. It's bound to fade because the motivation of the heart is me. It's not him. It's built around what I need to do in order to be a better Christian. And y'all, as noble as that may feel, that will never change the heart. The only thing that changes us, the only thing that will last beyond our our momentary sense of, of desiring to change, the only thing that will change you truly is if you treasure Christ. We're not Christians because we act better than other people. We're not Christians because we try harder to be good. We're Christians because we have been granted a treasure, a person that we can set our heart on, and all of life can revolve around him. That's why Paul does it this way in Colossians 3. He's going to give us a good long list of commands. All right, just come back next week. He's going to tell us a long list of sins to avoid, a list of of holy behaviors to embrace, He's going to tell us how to treat our husbands, treat our wives, treat our children, how do we work. All that stuff is coming. But before he ever gets there, he's got to deal with the foundation. He's got to deal with the core. It's the heart. Otherwise, we're just trying hard to obey commands in our own power and for our own sake. Only if we set our minds on the things of heaven will our hearts respond in kind. So in other words, listen, y'all, don't, don't, we can't just acknowledge the treasure we've been given. You can't just acknowledge Jesus is good. He's loved me and died for me. Yes, we acknowledge that. But you see what Paul's calling us to do? He says, swim in it. Don't just acknowledge that it's true. Immerse yourself in it. It's your treasure. It ought to dominate your thoughts and your affections and your ambitions. Everything about your life should revolve around him. You swim in this reality. You delight yourself in the Lord and his grace. Because if we really treasure him as he deserves, how would we continue to live the way we live? If I really really took to heart what we're reading today, would I be so easily distracted? Would I be so easily entertained? Would I be so easily uh, fooled into maintaining private sins. As long as you don't know, I'm okay. He died for them. He died to forgive those things. Why am I holding on to them, right? We've got to take to heart not more rules of behavior, not trying harder to be better, y'all. We've got to take to heart the treasure we've been given in Christ. That's the only thing that changes how we live. Now, I'm I'm going to close here with a big exclamation point. I want to make sure that we understand the refreshment of this command. This is not a duty that you better put your head down and get to work or else God's going to be mad at you. This is a privilege. Listen, this treasure that we're talking about is not something that we have to earn and maintain. You don't build this treasure up over time for yourself. This is a treasure that we've already been given. Since you have died with Christ since you have been raised with christ those are realities that you live in we stand in those things by faith we don't have to accrue those things you don't have to earn them this is a treasure we already possess that's why paul concludes this paragraph in verse 4 you see verse 4 he says when christ who is our life isn't that great when christ who is your life is revealed meaning when he returns then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That is not a command. That is a promise. That's a statement of fact. When Jesus Christ reveals his eternal glory to us, we will be included in it. Not because your behavior was all up to par. Not because you believed the Bible and tried to do what it said. That's not what gets you this glory. It's because you have received it freely as a gift by trusting in Him. And now it is yours. Y'all, this is a game we win. You might feel down in the dumps. You're not living up to this, this paragraph, that, and I'm not either, right? And we feel bad about that. Sure, that, that's, there can be a godly and good guilt that drives us forward, yes. But listen, the, the outcome is not in question here. This is a game we win. By faith in Jesus Christ, this treasure is already ours. And so Paul says, if you possess it, he's simply saying, live like it's true. If it's already yours, freely by his grace, then swim in it. And don't give your heart to anything less. That's when we find the joy of what it really is to be a Christian. Not trying harder all the time. Focused on ourselves but giving our entire life to him because our treasure is that great. Let's pray. Father, I I, I thank you this morning for the reminder that we we, we, we don't sit where we sit right now simply because we carry certain beliefs around with us. We don't just believe in Jesus and keep him around. Um, He is our life. We have died with him to the old self and we have been raised with him to seek heavenly things. Father, I pray that you would sober us to recognize that we, we are so easily charmed by worldly things, we are easily drawn back into the old way of life, the life that we died to, that we left behind. And yet it's so tempting, it's so easy, it's, so, um, it's, it's, it's the way so much of our environment is, and it's just easy to adopt it in fresh ways. And we, I, we pray this morning that we would recognize um, that we have been changed, And we are being changed, that we are called to to seek continually something new, the things of heaven, things that we previously had no interest in, no desire for. And now there's a new world opened up to us. We can actually know true joy, true belonging, true union with you, God, We can know life and holiness and goodness and grace, things that that eluded us before, but now they are ours in full. So, Father, as we acknowledge our own shortcomings in this, I pray that we don't remain there. I pray, Lord, that we raise our sights. We're not meant to wallow in the things below. We're meant to set our hearts on the things above. Lord, there's not a person in this room who does not need this. And I thank you, Lord, that that maybe in this moment we're willing to be honest with our own hearts. I need to raise my sights to the treasured Savior who has given me everything. Why would I live for anything less than Him? Father, tune our hearts to You, turn us to You. And Lord, show us the utter foolishness of the things that entertain and distract and charm us. Um, Just how bankrupt those things are in comparison. You are everything. Lord, help us in our hearts to truly believe that today. And we ask it in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Amen.